All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast directed by. So we are all finished watching Amy Heckerling's movies, uh, just about all of them. I think the only one uh, we skipped, if you're not a Patreon subscriber, is Look Who's Talking To, because uh, Mike just like refused to watch uh, the sequel to Look Who's Talking, so we, we skipped that. But uh, we are here to wrap everything up um, at the end. Uh, so as promised, uh, Roxana Haddadi is back to talk about all things Amy Heckerling. So Roxana, thanks for thanks for being here for the closing. Oh yeah, thanks for having me back on. Yes, of course. So before we jump into things, uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you online? Sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm usually posting about like food or like men I'm thirsting after. And that's um, at Roxana Haddadi. And uh, writing wise, you can find me at Pajiba, the AV Club, Crooked Marquee, Roger Ebert, and a few other places. Okay, awesome. So now we're back to talk about Amy Heckerling. So I just want to kind of jump into it with one thing that I've noticed as I've been watching and rewatching mostly her movies is how closely tied music is to her films. And I think that is kind of a lost art. Like, I think you can maybe think of, you know, directors like Tarantino still, like, you know, music is a big part of his work. But that, at least in my memory, like, that used to be a big deal. Like, buying a movie soundtrack was a huge deal when I was growing up in the 90s. Um, so is that something you notice with her work, um, in, or with, with film work in general, and where do you see it in Heckerling's work? Like, what stands out to you about the music and the films? This is, I, I was nodding very vehemently when you started <laughs> asking this question, because, like, movie soundtracks used to be the best. They were the best purchase. Yeah. And there was a, I'm sure that you saw that there was, like, a Twitter viral meme going around this weekend or last week that was, like, four albums that shaped mm. my high school experience or whatever. <laughs> all soundtracks. And all of mine. Yeah, all of mine were soundtracks. <laughs> I was like, ooh, Romeo and Juliet, Cruel Intentions, ooh. like, yep. all of these yep. great soundtracks. Yeah, so I definitely, I 100% agree that I think, and this to me feels, again, like a good example of just how detail-oriented Heckerling was and sort of how she very much was in tune with the popular culture at the time. Like we talked mm-hmm. last episode about how it sort of doesn't really feel like maybe there is a female director or honestly even a male director right now who is as in tune with that sort of like adolescent culture as she was. Um, and I think that for me, Oh my god, there's so many, there's so many good moments. I mean, rolling with the homies in Clueless <laughs> is like a classic, right? Like sure. that is very much a classic moment. It's great. But also, like, if you look at the rest of that soundtrack, it's also surprisingly, again, it's very 90s, but it's surprisingly alternative. It's like Counting Crows, Radio mm-hmm. Man, like I think Beastie Boys, the yep. Mighty Mighty Boston's are performing at that concert that she goes to with Christian. <laughs> you know, so I, I think that Heckerling was very much like had her finger on the pulse of like the alt 90s experience and you Mm -hmm. saw that again with Loser because again Loser also has a soundtrack that sort of relies on that same sound I mean like Teenage Dirtbag is very and Everclear is in the movie yes yes Everclear (laughs) is in the movie you know so it's like it's like Teenage Dirtbag and Pretty Fly for a White Guy. I think that you know, like, everything you need to know about Loser are in those two songs. <laughs> you know? True but story. yeah, it's, 
Outsiders, The Cure, man, Bloodhound Gang. So I, I do think that she was very thoughtful in how she considered her characters and what they would be into <laughs> and what they would be surrounded by. And maybe it's just a fault of me not watching a lot of like adolescent focused movies. You know, like there's tons of movies that like Netflix puts out that are like aimed at teenagers that I'm not necessarily watching. So somebody could be doing this and I'm just unaware, but I feel like heckerlings thoughtfulness and sort of like that nineties trend of nineties and two thousands trend of very thoughtful soundtracks. Like the apex was the OC. And that was a TV show. Yes. But, like, that was the zenith of that trend, I think, was everybody was, like, downloading the mixtapes and, like, the soundtracks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I think she very much was a part of that sort of shaping the way that we thought about music and movies together and what one brings to the other. Yeah, and I guess I guess it shouldn't be surprising given that like the first movie she directed was written by Cameron Crowe, which if you're going to pick, yes. you know, a yes. modern filmmaker who is focused on music for better or worse, depending depending on the movie, Cameron Crowe is probably going to yes. be in there. And I find it really interesting that according to everything I've read, like she wasn't super happy with the soundtrack to Fast Times, which is now seen as like a classic movie mm-hmm. soundtrack because she wanted stuff that was a little bit harder edge and a little bit more underground uh and she was kind of forced into it by the studio to kind of go a little more new wave which maybe wasn't her first choice but i think you can see throughout her career like music becomes a recurring theme like even you know even in a movie like i could never be your woman like you have essentially you know saoirse ronan being like a baby weird owl for some reason uh (laughs) but you know such a weird plot point (laughs) such an odd choice but music still does come up in all of her movies and i think that's i think maybe it's just like nostalgia like this is something i miss like not like you know i mean the last (laughs) the last gigantic soundtrack i remember like buying and getting because like there was a time kids you may not know this gather around the campfire that the like they gather around. <laughs> that's right. There used to be like they would put out a soundtrack, and then there would be like a volume two, uh, because uh, there were so many good. Track, like I think Days of Confused had two volumes. I think Romeo and Juliet had two volumes. Like it was a big. And when those came out, it was a big, big deal. Like you would go to a yes. thing called a record store, and you would go <laughs> get it. I know it was a big. It was a strange time. Uh, that was back when we could go outdoors. I, I know it's. It's very yeah. different in 2020. There was media, there was physical media <laughs> right. that you purchased. iTunes didn't exist. Yeah. It was a weird time. Uh, but really, yeah. it was a real thing. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, but, but I do think, I think that's a good point, though. Like, I think we, and we talk about this a lot just in terms of, like, pop culture overall. It's, like, the increase of, like, streaming services and digital media and all that stuff. Like, there very much is the opportunity for other people to have a part of the conversation, which is awesome because, like, it opens up the avenues for, you know, like, more perspectives and more points of view and Mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. But I think that Amy Heckerling came up when there was more of, like, a monoculture. Yeah. Like, a mainstream pop culture and so i think soundtracks very much feel like a product of that time because it's like if you it was harder to find obscure music 
yeah. right? Like it was you had to difficult. Find imports. That's it was a thing. You had to find imports or like, and I think that's why, like, when I went to college, like the college station was still awesome because oh, you were yes. like, oh, it's all this music that I haven't even considered. So I think, like, in a lot of ways, she was sort of doing that kind of work where yeah. she was like introducing you to things that you might not be familiar with alongside stuff that was like more popular and recognizable and stuff like that. Yeah. And so, you know, I just, oh man, takes me back. Takes yes. me back. Absolutely. Definitely. I mean, yeah. I think I, last thing I'll say about this, I'll get off my high horse about, you know, physical media and music and all that. I think the one thing I feel like music is really missing now because everything is available streaming is the lack of like, it's an event to like go and go and get yes. music. Like, I think, you know, we still have like event stuff when it comes to music now, you know, but it's always the, the kind of gigantic releases, right? Beyonce comes yeah. out with a new album. Taylor Swift comes Taylor out with a new Swift. album. It's right. a big deal. But I remember like, cause I was like a, a punk kid. I was into punk rock. Mm-hmm. So like, I remember when like bad religions, new album came out. I was like first, I was at the store at opening. I have to be the first to unwrap the CD and play it. Or, mm-hmm. you know, in my earlier days, a tape, because I am that old. I was around before compact discs. So it's like, you, you lose a little bit of that, but, you know, I do like the fact that like everything is so much more available now. Like you don't have to yeah. hunt as much to find this stuff. Like you can find kind of everything you want, you know, with the push of a button and you're good to go, which is awesome. So so many more people will get access. So that is a really yeah. good thing. Um, most importantly, did you have a tower? Did you have a Sam Goody? What was we your... had my I had a tower and I had a the warehouse. Those were my two. Oh, the warehouse. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. And then Oof. because because I was a punk rock kid, I used to go to a place in, I used to live in California, a place called Streetlight Records. Uh, that was the place to go mm-hmm. for like mm-hmm. vinyl and like imports and all that stuff. So yes, I yeah. had, I had yeah. lots of choices. I was very, very lucky. Uh, mm. But back to Andy Heckerling. So sorry for that diatribe. Uh, but uh, one of the things I love to make our experts do is to make them explain uh, choices that I have made on this show. Uh, so um, this show is all about, you know, the best directors and the auteurs. So what sets Amy Heckerling apart from other directors? Why should she be covered on a show like this? So please explain to my audience why I've made the choices that I've made. <laughs> I mean, I think Heckerling is worth talking about because I don't Man, this is I I I'm very te- I'm tempted to say something very hyperbolic, so I'm trying to like rein in what I no, want to say. No, don't rein but, it in. Just go but, for it. I just I just I think I think Clueless is an essential film. Like I really do. Like I think it is essential in terms of that coming of age narrative and a literary adaptation and a female perspective and I just think like a great romantic comedy. I mean, there's so many things about it that like, it is such a perfect encapsulation of genre. While I also think expanding past the normal limitations of genre. And, and so I just think it's like, I will talk about this later because I think it's, you know, it's her masterwork and I just love it unreservedly. But, you know, I think it's when we talk about auto theory, it's like a director just needs like, one amazing movie right to be Uh like heralded and you know like we think about 
something like to me something like inception is like christopher nolan's or you uh-huh. could say like goodfellas is marty's and uh, i just call him marty you know yeah, it's fine. we're cool like that um, no big deal yeah we're cool like that <laughs> like you know like Sofia Coppola has last in translation. Like, you know, like you have these certain movies that are so tied with who the director is and what they have brought to Hollywood. And I just think you can't talk about the romantic comedy or the coming of age film or literary adaptations without talking about Clueless. And so you can't not talk about you can't talk, yeah. you can't not talk about Amy Heckerling. Man, too many double negatives. But yeah, I just think that she I just think that her work is like really important. And I think it's really important because as we've talked about numerous times, like work about women and by women is so often disregarded as yeah. like not as important or not as interesting or whatever. But I think Clueless is so beloved that it's really proving something about how universal stories from those perspectives can also be yeah so i just i just really i just really love it and it's so strange to watch now because it's like yeah it was made 25 years ago but it still feels as current and thoughtful in its examination of like how young men and young women talk to each other and how like clicks function and just so many things about like the adolescent experience that I think are still relevant. And I also think we see that because like Heckerling has continued to do work sort of in this space. Like I think Vamps was very much about like wanting to grow up, but like I think she did some work on Gossip Girl and I think she has like continued to do some work in like adolescent focused media because she just is such a big, you know, like her work has cast such a long shadow. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, great points. Um, I think the one thing, like I keep, like I've watched Clueless probably an embarrassing amount of times. Um, right. And I swear to you, I don't know, I don't know if it's just like something in my brain. Every single time I forget that this is an adaptation of a Jane Austen novel. And then it like yeah. occurs to me like 45 minutes in and then I'm, and then it goes from like great to like fucking phenomenal. Like this is just like, how did you, how did you do this? Like this, this shouldn't exist. Uh, and I'm so glad it does. But like every time I watch it, I get that realization all over again. And I like, you know, you know, I think the Gwyneth Paltrow version is pretty good. And I think the more recent version uh, of, Emma period uh, that came out this year was also pretty good, pretty, pretty fantastic. But this just is, it like puts it on a whole nother level. And I think, I think it gets, it gets not as great treatment as it should because, you know, it focuses not only on young women, uh, but also focuses on kind of like maybe a Valley Girl stereotype. So you automatically mm-hmm. are like, oh, it's just stupid humor, blah, blah, blah. But there's like so much to that movie. And like, I kind of always forget how good it is until I put it on again. Because it feels kind of like a joke, like how many times I've watched it. But then I put it on again. I'm like, no, like this, this rules. Like this is so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it kind of mm-hmm. never gets old. And there's not that many movies like that. It's amazing to watch a movie that many years later that is focused on youth culture that still works. Like you mentioned in our, in the last time we talked about John Hughes, like I love The Breakfast Club and I always love it, but I'll love it because I saw it when I was 15. Uh, and it really hit all those right beats. So I, I watch it now and I kind of relive that. 
but I don't think it holds up as a movie about youth uh, in 2020, whereas Clueless yes. somehow still does. And I don't know how she managed that. I don't know what deal she made with the devil to make that work, but somehow <laughs> it still works even in 2020. So I, I sort of talked about this in my Crooked Marquee piece. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like Clueless works for me because I think that the characters overall are better developed mm-hmm. than John Hughes movies. And I still, you know, oh, they're not just stereotypes. Club. They're not... Well, they're not just, well, they're not just stereotypes necessarily, but I think that like, they're so well written that you sort of understand that they're all going on their own journeys yeah. as Cher is going on hers. And so while we're just focusing on Cher, that does not mean that Ty isn't also trying out various personalities and trying to figure out who she wants to be. That doesn't mean that like Dion and Murphy stop their relationship mm-hmm. until Cher pays attention to them. That doesn't mean that like Paul Rudd, like Josh at college just like stops going to college. Like I think she does a very good job showing incremental growth and forward progression for each character, even if we are not spending direct time with them on screen. So that to me is something that really sticks out in her work. I think she always has a handle of where her characters are going, even when we might not be paying attention. God, that's such a great point. I think in so many especially coming-of-age movies, especially coming-of-age comedies, it does feel like when someone exits stage left, like their whole life stops. Uh, Whereas in this, it does feel like they keep going. And when they come back, things have happened that we don't know about, but their life continues in this forward momentum. Uh, And that's not something that's easy to accomplish regardless of genre. Um, I think that's the mark of great movies, actually, is that you can imagine – before the movie, things happening, and after the movie, things happening, and in between the scenes of the movie, things happening. And I, you know, I think that's actually a really small percentage of films that manage to capture that with their characters. Because usually your characters are like, okay, this character is designed to get us to this point. And once they're there, honestly, who cares what happens after that? But the greats, these are the ones that like, oh, these are actual fully developed characters that have both internal and external lives, whether we see them or not. I think we do get that in Clueless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. So now is the time in our kind of wrap up where we, I kind of give you the opportunity to gush about uh, the filmmaker. So the kind of like, Oh my God, this is so amazing. Um, are there particular scenes or moments that either really stand out to you? Or that kind of encapsulate her work. Like if you're going to watch one scene of an Amy Heckerling movie, like this really shows what she can do best. No pressure. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Oh, that's so hard. Um, I mean, I think for me, probably just because I've been gushing so much about Clueless, Clueless, I think that probably one of the best scenes i think in that movie which makes me uh laugh very much is the sequence where she has left the party uh with jeremy sisto's character and so she has left the party and she's trying to get him to you know fall for ty or whatever and he basically is like aghast at the fact that Cher would think that he would be into Ty when he's been into her this whole time 
And something that I like very much about that scene and what happens afterward is I think that you are finally getting some self-reflection for a character who up until now has been so sure of her own persuasive ability and her matchmaking skills and that she knows people better than they know themselves. And I think that (laughs) scene is a great reminder of the fact that like Cher is still what, 16, 17, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like she's not as smart as she thinks she is. She's not as adult as she thinks she is. She doesn't know people as well as she thinks she does. And then she gets mugged. It's just, it's hilarious because again, it's a reminder of like, yes, you might be the queen bee in your social circle, but there is a whole other world happening around you in which you are just one player. And then I love how that sequence ends, which is where she calls Josh and wakes him up from college where he's like with his girlfriend or whatever and he comes and gets her and this girl that josh is dating is giving a whole speech about you know like political activism something right yeah and then she says you know as hamlet says to thine own self be true and then you have Cher from the back saying well hamlet didn't say that polonius did and i might not remember the play but i remember the mel gibson movie and so it's just one of those things again where it's like we've seen Cher go on this whole journey in this one sequence like she was very sure of herself she was sure of this match that she had created she's taken down a peg she interacts with the outside world she's reminded that like her well and her beauty cannot necessarily protect her the mugging goes as safely and as amusingly (laughs) as it could possibly go and then you know like safely ensconced in her chair in her chariot on the way back home she is still able to say you know like i am intelligent like i Uh do know stuff and her confidence and her verve comes right back so i think that what i like about heckerling is that she doesn't necessarily seem interested in like torturing her characters to prove to us why they're worthwhile or why they're interesting. I think she's confident enough in building them for us and then having obstacles happen. Like these movies are not without, you know, miniature struggles for these people, but she wants more to show us how do you move forward from something versus Right. How do you struggle with something? Right. Like, I think there's something different in terms of like focusing on the struggle and how terrible it is and how awful it is and how hard you have it or whatever versus focusing on like, well, what do you do next and how do you move forward? Yeah. So I think for me, that's really interesting. Um, and I think like a lot of Clueless is like that. I think a lot of her movies are like that. Like, you might not meet these people at like the best moment of their lives, but there's a focus on like, well, how do you become a better version of yourself? Like, I think Loser is about that. I think Vamps is about that. It's like, okay, like if given the opportunity to like assess who you are, is there something you want to do differently? And then like, how do you go about achieving that? And I think those are like very tangible stakes that come up a lot in her movies, even in Vamps when like the vampires are being chased by Van Helsing or whatever. It's like there's still a focus on like, okay, this is our friendship. How do we navigate this friendship when we're being hunted by a vampire killer, you know? (laughs) So, yeah, so that would would probably be my chosen scene just to Mm. show you 
how she cares about her characters and how she shows them to us. I think that's a great choice because I, I think also I was just thinking about that scene, not only as we're talking now, but as I was rewatching Clueless, because it's, and particularly in a rewatch, because you know where this is going with her and Josh. And I think it's, it's also a remarkably efficient scene because uh, it's not only it's funny, it's not only showing that she is her own person and that she's intelligent, but it also like gives us a clue to why Josh would be into her. Uh, because before that moment, I think you're like, okay, they kind of get along, but like, what, what do they actually have in common? And when she shows not only that she's intelligent, but that she stands up for herself and that she's her own person, you're like, oh, I could get, I could actually see this working. So like looking back on that scene, it accomplishes so much in like, what, like 20, 30 seconds, like it's just 20, 30 seconds of dialogue, but you get everything that you need to know. So it's kind of, it's kind of a remarkable scene in that way. Yeah. It's so efficient. Yes, definitely. So some directors, um, whether they're good or bad, whether they're great or awful, some directors, there are movies you only want to watch once, and some of them are very rewatchable. So like the movie, the movie I can't help but think of when I think of like movies I only want to watch once, like relatively recently in the past six months, I watched A Woman Under the Influence uh, by Cassavetes, which is Amazing. Mm. And if I ever watch that again, uh, put me on suicide watch because like it is Mm. something has gone terribly wrong because I don't ever want to go through that again. Uh, But it's to me, it's like one of the greatest movies ever made. And yet I was like, no, no, I'm done now. Uh, (laughs) So what category do you think Heckerling falls under? Are all of her movies rewatchable Um, or there's some that are like that kind of level of like, I just can't I can't put myself through this again. I can't do this again. That's a good question. I think for me, the stuff that feels most purely hers is pretty rewatchable, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Like, I think Clueless feels very purely hers, Loser, and Vamps. And I Could Never Be Your Woman. I'm less into I Could Never Be Your Woman just for the stuff that you described. Like, some of the script is, like, a little bit corny. And, like, I like it, but I don't love it. Um, Right. But for me, I think I I cannot rewatch National Lampoon's European Vacation. And I feel like a lot of people don't even like really consider it one of her films because it was like a right. franchise film. But I actually think it's very interesting to look at in terms of her career because like I would think that it's a I would think that the movie was a big deal. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it was still it was a sequel to what had been like a pretty phenomenal film like Chevy Chase in the 80s was incomparable like they were still using some material left over from John Hughes like I I do think it's one of those things that I it just does not feel like a correct fit for what she does right and so I have watched it and do not care to watch it (laughs) Yeah, a different kind you know? of like a, a not rewatchable just because like I don't like it. I want it to stop. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it yeah. is a strange yeah. fit though because I'm trying to remember the timeline. Was that after Look Who's Talking? I feel no, like it, it was before. Oh, okay. Now it makes a little more sense. Okay, that's yeah. that's all right. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and I think Look Who's Talking is really interesting because I do i mean i don't think this has ever been like discussed but look who's talking was like a couple years after everything happened with ramus mm-hmm. so i always wonder like how much 
how much of her life is that movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I've always yeah. become, I've, I've become more and more curious about that. So, you know, it's interesting. I actually haven't rewatched that one in a while just because like, I don't know. I, I don't like necessarily love either Travolta or Kirstie Alley. So like I haven't been as interested in revisiting that one, but I almost wonder now if it's worth revisiting because it's like, huh? I wonder how much of her own story could we now graft. Yeah. Onto I mean, that. there's a lot there for sure. It's an interesting rewatch from my perspective. I think the biggest weakness of it is to me, uh, the stardom of Kirstie Alley and John Travolta is so of that moment that like, mm-hmm. it doesn't really work in 2020. Cause like you're, mm-hmm. when you have stars of the moment, you're like, Oh, these are people I know I'm, I'm automatically going to root for them. And you don't really have that in 2020, especially with John Travolta. Like, you're just like, eh, I don't know, but you know, pasting all of the kind of real life stuff on top of it. Definitely. There's a lot, there's a lot of material there. And she's been, you know, even back then was pretty much on record saying like I was inspired by by my own pregnancy and my own life. And it feels mm. like maybe she was inspired a lot more uh, than she was letting on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because there's you know, that that's a very good point. It's it's different to be like, oh, I was inspired by like the experience of having children versus right. like, oh, I was inspired by the experience of having an affair sure. with a womanizer. Yes, <laughs> yeah, and him like, not helping. Like, uh, oh, this yeah. is awkward. Yes, definitely. Yes. Um, so before we get to like the best favorite and the masterpiece, um, I was thinking like, if anything, like if you could have like, you know, your dream scenario, what would you want from her as a director in the future? Cause she hasn't made a feature film since Vamps, which is like eight years ago now in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, she's been doing a lot of TV work, which is fine and great. But if she were to make a movie, what would you want from her? And all I want. I just want her to work with Michelle Pfeiffer again in a good movie. That's, that's what I want. Uh, I just, because Michelle Pfeiffer has had this kind of rebirth into, uh, into Hollywood uh, in the last four or five years, like a little resurgence. Um, And I think I would love to see what Heckerling would do with her in a movie that maybe didn't end up going straight to video. Uh, But what about you? What would you want to see from Amy Heckerling as a filmmaker? really that's a very interesting question because i think the michelle pfeiffer suggestion sort of opens up something because it's like you know if if paul rudd or alicia silverstone or whomever hadn't worked with heckerling again (laughs) i think i would say like oh it would be nice to see them like reunited like that would be nice or whatever but keeping that in mind i do think it's interesting to think what could Heckerling and Pfeiffer do together? Because I also think that Pfeiffer has always been known for having like a very sort of like sensual persona on screen. Mm -hmm. And I think about the fact that like, I don't think Heckerling has really done a movie that veers into like, (laughs) I don't know how to say this without seeming like, crass i think a lot of heckerling's movies are about like you fall in love and like it's very sweet and it's pg-13 and like there's a lot of like hand holding and kissing and like like i would be i would be really interested in seeing what kind of story could heckerling craft for like an older woman a woman who is like pfeiffer's age Mm -hmm. and like navigating the field of love right now 
Yes. Like, I think that would be interesting because I think Amy Heckerling is very good at understanding, like, relationship dynamics, especially, like, mm-hmm. male-female relationship dynamics, and, like, how you can fall in love very quickly, and it can be sort of a whirlwind, and then, like, what happens when, like, real life catches up? Like, I don't think that Heckerling has done the, like, real life catches up with you Right. part of falling in love there's a lot of like the experience of falling in love and how like great that is and how much you can enjoy it and like it makes you renounce being a vampire or whatever but like what happens <laughs> like what happens after that i think would be really interesting yeah so and sort of, god like, as long as she doesn't as long as she doesn't partner her with john lovitz again i'm i'm totally down for this because yeah, if anything yeah. doesn't make sense it's michelle piper and john lovitz like that i don't yeah no and <laughs> And we have, and you brought up, I mean, like, you brought up Myers before. Like, I think there is a market for these, like, you know, for a big market for these, like, older people. And I hate even calling them older because, like, God. Well, for Hollywood, for Hollywood, they're ancient. They're over 22. (laughs) Yeah, for Hollywood, they're ancient. Yeah, you're right. No, I mean, like, you and I in Hollywood. We're we're old. Yeah. God, we're like bridge trolls. That's right. Um, But yeah, I think I think that would be sort of interesting. I would be interested to see her reunite with Pfeiffer, as you've said, now in sort of like the Pfeiffer resurgence. And I would be interested in a story that maybe is a little bit more aimed at like the latter part of what romance can be, mm-hmm. whether that's like Pfeiffer, I don't know, dating again or something, or just like a relationship later into its years than just like we immediately fell in love. You know, I think there's something there that she could bring that would be very thoughtful. I also think if she wanted to, like, do another, um, like, movie based on her own life or whatever, I I think if I'm doing the math, <laughs> I guess her daughter now would be in her, like, early 20s. Mm. I also would be sort of interested in, like, a uh, a empty nest sort of story from Amy Heckerling. Yeah. Because I could see, you know, like, I think it would be very interesting from her perspective, like, to see what is motherhood like when the child is older. Because, again, like, look who's talking and, like, even vamps were focused on, like, all right, you have a baby. Like, what happens next? Right. You know, so I would be kind of curious to see. I guess I just want to know, like, what kind of, like, movie about adulthood would Amy Heckerling make? Right. Like, she's so good at that, like, coming-of-age journey. Like, I'm just, I'm interested to see what she would do with, like, the latter half of a life. Definitely. And also, just as someone who has been used and abused by the Hollywood system, I would just love it. And this will never happen. But I would love it if mm-hmm. she would just be given a blank check, like, make whatever movie you want. Because I'm sure she's run into, like, a thousand brick walls in the, like, 40 years mm-hmm. she's been in the business. Like, please, just tell a story you want to tell and not something that just will agree to please just tell whatever story i would i would love mm-hmm. for a director like heckerling to give to get that that opportunity because even like my experience with her movies even the movies that i don't particularly like like i could see something there where i'm like oh there's there's talent here there's something here even a movie like i could never be your woman which i had a lot of issues with i was like yeah but there's something there's something here that you could make into a really good movie. There's not a single one of her mm-hmm. movies that I watch and I'm like, oh, God, that is just a piece of garbage. Like, I never want to think about right. that again. There's something there. So so please, right. just someone give her a blank check uh, so she can stop working in TV and make a, make a movie again. Um, well, and 
the, just the last thing I would add to that mm-hmm. is I feel like Heckerling's interesting because, like, franchise-wise, she really only had to do National Lampoon yeah. as, like, a franchise vehicle. So I think she has somehow, although it's infrequent work, she has been given the opportunity to mostly do, at least it seems, things that she would want to do. But right. like you've said, with like very obvious like budget limitations right. and like release limitations. So, you know, I also would be interested in seeing like a miniseries. I'm not going to like oh, put yeah. that out the window either. Because yeah. like she's so good at like analyzing like specific cultures of people, like subcultures, mm-hmm. like whether that's like the high school world or like you know, the other like areas in which she has focused her efforts. So I do think that would be interesting, but just, yeah, just give her, just like, give her something. Yeah. (laughs) Give her something to do. (laughs) All right. So now we come to the part in the show, uh, (laughs) that my co-host, uh, couldn't stand. He hated having to give these answers. So now I make the experts (laughs) do it, which makes sense. You are the experts. So you would have more knowledge on this. So, uh, just a little behind the curtain, uh, when I first, gave Roxana this assignment of choosing her best, uh, her favorite movie and what Heckerling's masterpiece is. I had to like put some limitations here that she had to pick a different movie for all of these. So this wouldn't just be the clueless episode. Uh, Cause obviously that would be all three. And just to refresh for our audience. I mean, best is pretty best and favorite are pretty, uh, self-explanatory, but uh, the masterpiece discussion uh, is about, like, if you could pick one movie from this filmmaker that kind of encapsulates everything that they can do. Like, if someone had never seen a Heckerling movie, be like, this is the one you should watch. This is what you're going to get from Heckerling. So, to start off with, um, what's your favorite Amy, Amy Heckerling movie? See, I feel like... <laughs> it's clueless, but it's not. <laughs> yeah, for the for the rules of this game... <laughs> <laughs> because like clueless has to be the masterpiece so like yeah so for the rules of this game i will say my favorite for the rules of this game i will say that my favorite <laughs> i have to keep saying that i have to say that my favorite is vamps okay i think it is interesting to me and enjoyable to see Heckerling like sort of playing outside of like her usual like genre ideas. Uh-huh. So I like that is like it is not really horror because like the vampires aren't scary, <laughs> but it is like some you know like it is some like fantastical elements it's like horror adjacent. That's... Yeah, it's like that's a very good way to put it. It's very horror adjacent, so I think she's doing something a little different. But I think she is also playing with like certain tropes about like the vampire figure, which I think are very thoughtful. And it's interesting to me too that like her idea of sort of being a vampire is different from like a lot of what we see, which is just like oh, like I wanted to be like beautiful and like live forever or whatever. Like these people turn to like being vampires because they like. Have had hardship like they struggled with drugs or whatever or they were sort of like abused so i think it's one of those things where i was intrigued by what she did with a formula that i'm otherwise very accustomed to you mm-hmm. know what i mean yeah and it's like we don't really see well this could be wrong as i say it but i feel like the vampire comedy isn't necessarily something we get a lot of the time like Buffy I guess what we do in the shadows is probably the only example. Yeah, like 
what we do in the shadows is like a very good modern example and i think like buffy the movie sort of was but there's also so much like very (laughs) it tried tried its best there's also so much other like very melodramatic like dan writes buffy the show got like real fucking dark you know so i think it's interesting that there is as I mentioned before, Heckerling's like customary playfulness uh-huh. in this world that could be very dark. And so I think she keeps it like thematically light by focusing on like the friendship between Alicia Silverstone and Kristen Werder's character. Scorny Weaver is in there being very <laughs> enjoyably like late career campy Sigourney Weaver so it's just it's sort of one of those movies where I feel like and we talked about this before like it feels like everybody is having a good time Uh and so I find it very rewatchable so okay so yes I will go with that (laughs) as my favorite okay so what is what is Amy Heckerling's best movie that's not clueless okay best movie i mean i think for this one like we have to say it's fast times Mm -hmm. because i think that fast times was such a confident debut incredibly so and i think you know very confident and i think it is one of those coming of age movies that sort of I don't want to say it rejects sentimentality because I don't think that is necessarily true, but I think it isn't as, this might be, this might be weird to say. I think it isn't as like emotionally focused as some of the other eighties movies. Like I think Mm -hmm. fast times to me, doesn't really have like a quote unquote, like message no. In terms of like, and you it know, could have. Terms... I mean, when you have a sequence about abortion, like it was there yes. to be had if she yes. wanted to. It's one of the things I love most about it is that she didn't yes. go that route. So yeah, definitely yes. agree. Yes, like I think that she shows these teenagers' lives without judgment, mm-hmm. and I think that because there's no judgment from her, and of course that also helps because of Cameron Crowe's script, but I think because there isn't that sort of like imposed judgment, it does just feel very much like you are like hanging out with these characters, going to class with them, being amazed by Spicoli, <laughs> being the creep, watching the hot girl in the pool. <laughs> like I think it really puts you in their shoes in a way that I think is impressive for a first-time film. Yeah, definitely. So I think for me that would be the best because it feels like she puts everything out there that she is, like, eventually going to do, Mm -hmm. right? Like, she's going to be very good at analyzing these, like, subcultures and figuring out how people relate to each other and – like mapping relationship dynamics over time without putting in a sort of outside framing of how we should feel about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes back to like what we talked about with like how her characters are so well written. I think because her characters are so well developed, it's like you're going to have a reaction to them. Yeah. But that's going to come from the character. It's not going to come from how the film wants you to feel. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so the big mystery, <laughs> what is Amy <laughs> Heckerling's masterpiece? What could it possibly I mean, be, Roxana? It's, 
it's you know it's clueless i mean it's 100 percent clueless it's definitely clueless i just i oh i just love it <laughs> i just love it I that was so genuine <laughs> yeah I just, because i think as you said like it very much has like stood the test of time mm-hmm. as absurd as their outfits are as large as their cell phones are like (laughs) all of the aesthetic choices of this movie in 2020 you can kind of look at and be like oh that's like sort of goofy and sort of funny or whatever but like the growth that Cher exhibits over the film I think is something that is still really relatable like she doesn't endeavor to like 100% change who she is or change everything about her friends or about her school or whatever. Like, I think she sees the power in doing things for other people without expecting like social adoration as a result. Right. Like, I think that she learns the message of just like, you can just like be a good person and do good things and not expect anything in return. And that in and of itself will be the good thing. You know what I mean? Right. So like, I think about like her turning point in like Miss Geis's class when she realizes that like, Oh, I am incredibly privileged and I could help. But again, it doesn't turn into share than like feeling bad about herself. Right. Like, when she is like giving all the stuff to the drive and she's like pulling out her skis and her dad is like, why would they want our skis? And she's like, well, dad, they lost everything. You know what I mean? It's like, it doesn't make us much like with fast times. It doesn't make us judge share. Like it's not there to like shame her for who she is. And so I think that's one of the things that for me makes it a masterpiece. And also like, very indicative of Heckerling's work overall for as much as her characters are often female and for as much as her movies are genre films again that are often for female viewers there's no shame for any of her characters she never makes us feel bad about anybody yeah and I just think that's very admirable because she is still showing people who make mistakes (laughs) and who make bad choices but not the kind of way where you're like, oh, I hate her forever. I mean, like, Ty's very sick burn of you're a virgin who can't drive. <laughs> you don't end Clueless hating Ty, right? No. It's like they mend their friendship and it's very clear that they each know who the other person is and that they still like and care about each other. And so I just I really appreciate that about her work. And I think Clueless does that the best. It shows that you can be exactly who you are and that can be good enough. Yeah. And it's so rare to see a lead character, not only like that privilege, but also that their heart is in the right place from the beginning. Like even the, like the debate, uh, the sequence of the debate class where she's talking about the quote unquote, the Hadians, uh, the Hadians. <laughs> yes. like, even though like when you boil it all down, she's like, she's still nice. She's still a good person underneath all of this privilege and her journey is more about being more aware of that privilege and her journey is not to become a good person she's a good person from frame one uh and it's so rare that you see a lead character that positive (laughs) 
that's a very good way to put it too because like josh has to be like oh yeah there are wars around the world and oh yeah our housekeeper isn't just mexican right <laughs> like josh josh is the one to open her eyes to the way that she is unaware and to the mm-hmm. way that she is ignorant and then she adapts as a result so right. i also think it's one of the things where it's like she, the movie doesn't beat her over the head with being wrong it's right. like you're wrong. What are you going to do about it? And it would be so easy to make fun of her, like from the film's perspective, yeah. to just mock her to within an inch of her life. And I like the fact that it still is like she is our lead character and she's who we're following and she's a good person. And we're going to join yeah. her as she learns. And that is very rare, in especially in comedies, because the easy joke is easy and tempting to go for. And I like the fact that Clueless mm-hmm. almost never goes for the easy joke here. It actually goes mm-hmm. for a little bit more depth, which is something you would not expect out of a high school coming of age movie about a valley girl who is ultra rich. And yet here we are. Like that is Yeah. I mean, like normally I would be like Cher Horowitz, give her the guillotine. Right. But like <laughs> somehow it works. Somehow it works. Somehow it works. All right. So we made it through the best, the favorite and the masterpiece. Um, I will just cheat and say clueless for all three. Um, so, because I can't, because it's, it's my so show. Rude. I get to do whatever yeah, I want. Of course. Um, so uh, we have reached the end of our Amy Heckerling coverage. So Roxana, one more time, I wanted to give you the opportunity, not only to let people know where they can find your work and where they can find you online, but any last statements you have on Heckerling, if you have them, no pressure. Um, but anything we didn't get a chance to talk about now is your time. Um, I think I would just want to reiterate something that we talked about before, which is that Heckerling to me seems like a very interesting case study in the ways that we have let women filmmakers down mm-hmm. and the way that we have expected greatness and even when that greatness comes, been like, all right, well, like it wasn't good enough. Bye. <laughs> so right. I think I think it's one of those things where I can understand that, like, not every heckerling movie might be for you. But I think if you do love Clueless, which I think a lot of viewers of a certain age do, I think you do sort of owe it to heckerling to seek out some of her other work. And it is sort of available online. I mean... It's available mostly for rental. You can find some of her films on streaming. So I think it's worth it. And I also think it's like not a huge time commitment because Heckerling Mm -hmm. really lives in that like 90 to 100 minute. God bless her for that. Yeah. She really lives. She really (laughs) lives in that window. So I, you know, I would just say like, as we talk more and more about the importance of like giving space to female filmmakers, give some to Heckerling. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. And where can people find you and your work online? Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter. It's uh, at R-O-X-A-N-A underscore H-A-D-A-D-I. So at Roxana underscore Hadadi. You can find my work at Pajiba.com, theavclub.com, Crooked Marquee, um, Roger Ebert every so often. And um, I'm also on Rotten Tomatoes. So if you just want to check out my Rotten Tomatoes page and like see some stuff I've written, that would be your best bet. Awesome. So once again, thank you for being here for these episodes. I really, really appreciate it. You gave me a great perspective on Heckerling's work uh, that we sorely needed on an episode with two white guys. Uh, So definitely appreciate (laughs) that. Um, And I don't know which director we're covering next, um, but if you follow us on Twitter, you will be among the first 
to find that information out. So, of course, as always, you can follow us at Directed by uh, at Directed by Pod on Twitter. Uh, and if you'd like to donate some of your hard-earned money, God knows why you'd want to do that. But if you are desperate to do that, we do have a Patreon where we'll have some extra episodes, some extra goodies for you guys. And that's just Patreon.com/slash A Podcast Directed.